morning, Plasterita Bible Church. It's a joy to be with you today. So uh, just uh, 2005, uh, you as a church affirmed, laid hands on my wife and I and sent us to India, to at the time Varanasi, India. And then while we were there, um, 2009, we shifted to a city called Lucknow. And uh, over the, co- the course of these last 14 years, you as a church, as a congregation, have been our sending church, our supporting church, the ones who have partnered with us, supported us, to be able to live there, to be able to survive and, and even thrive. And we thank you. We thank you as individuals. We thank you as a congregation for being the ones who hold the rope, an old, uh, an old proverb or an old story where the missionary goes down into the hole and, and into, the, into the cave to do some mysterious work or some dangerous work. And, and there are people who are up on, the, on the, the ground holding the rope so that the person can go down. And, and uh, the, the old missionary quotes, I'll go down into the hole as long as you hold the rope. And we, we do. We thank you. We, we praise God for you as our family, our spiritual family, for holding the rope while we've been down in the hole. And even now, I guess nine months ago, we came back here to Santa Clarita, and we didn't know what we were going to be able to do, what, what, where we were pivoting to, what was going to be in our future. Um, in December, we closed down our house in Lucknow, and we began praying and saying, Lord, what do you want us to do? Where can we use our gifts? How can we build your kingdom and be a part of uh, local church development in the world? And um, over the course of, of many weeks, of many conversations, um, we connected with a church in the United Arab Emirates called Redeemer Church. And then Redeemer Church, about three years ago, started a seminary uh, to be able to train up men uh, for church leaders, uh, to be church leaders, elders, pastors, and then to send those men back to the countries from which they come. Now, the United Arab Emirates, if you know vaguely, it's kind of the middle of the Middle East. It's just below Iran, just a little over from South Asia, India, Pakistan, just a little over from East Africa. And that really is representative of the church, people from all over the world in this church in the middle of Dubai. And so we have the privilege, Karen and I, of going and serving with a local church that is raising, training up men, and then sending them back to their countries where they get to, to pastor or elder or be a part of, of local church ministry. And so for us, it's, it's thrilling. It's, it's exciting to be a part of a local church, a local church here like Placerita, a local church like Redeemer there in, in the United Arab Emirates. And so we just want to say thank you. Thank you for... Um, many of you have been praying with us, for us, even as we've been trying to figure out, Lord, what would you have us do? And even now we can say, thank you, praise the Lord with us, as we look in, into the, the next several months, probably January 2020, I'd uh, be able to move to uh, Dubai. And so even as we return down to the hole, you guys continue to hold the rope for us. And so we're, we're grateful for you. We're, we're, we're thankful for your prayers. We're thankful that you partner with us, because we don't go there alone. In fact, when you think about the Sea Houstons who just left for Fiji, you think about the Malakars who've been in India for many, many years. You support them while you sit here, while you pray, while you sing songs of the Lord Jesus. You are actively, actually participating in their ministry. And so on behalf of them, on, on behalf of, of the, what we've gotten to do in Lucknow, we thank you and we praise the Lord Jesus. We praise Christ on your behalf. Now today... I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And in particular, I want to I think about and talk about what does it mean to be a faithful gospel worker. Uh, my wife and I have gotten to see a lot of people in India come and, and do faithful gospel work. And even as we 
turn to look at, at the United Arab Emirates, we want to be faithful gospel workers ourselves. And as you all, as, as followers of Christ, people who, who love the gospel, who love the Lord Jesus, we want to see you be faithful gospel workers. And so there really are, there are five things that you need to remember that you want to have to be a faithful gospel worker. There, there are five aspects or components to being someone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and wants to shine, wants to shine forth Christ. And we can see that here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so look there with me as I read verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled that they are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we come to you now. We want to see in, the, in these verses, we want to see in this text, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I pray that you even now would help us to lay aside, to, to put off the distractions and detractions of the morning. Father, we want to come and see Jesus Christ, to see his glory, to behold him and to love him. Lord, help me now, even as we look to your word. In his name we pray. Amen. The, uh, the first component, the thing that we desire as we, go to, as we go to Dubai, the thing that we would ask for, you to, for your prayers is we want to remember mercy. I want you to remember mercy to be a faithful gospel worker, to be someone who shines forth Christ. Now, mercy is we do not get what we deserve, right? We receive, we get something and yet we deserve something else. And Paul wants from the very beginning here in chapter 4, verse 1, he wants us to remember mercy. You know, this morning, when you came in this morning, I, I, I don't know what your heart was like, what you were desiring, what was motivating, what you were thinking. Some of you perhaps came out of sheer obligation. You feel you have to come. Some of you perhaps came because it's what you do. You, you simply come every week week in week out without thinking some of you came knowing that you're a mess and wanting help but i can tell you this morning you have come here out of mercy you have come here already received mercy and this morning you're going to receive mercy and when you leave today it will be by mercy god's mercy to you now in second corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 to chapter 7 verse 1 we have three four chapters full of what, what it means to love the gospel. And today, I would commend to you if, you, if you want to be spurred on in your faith, if you want to drink like a spiritual Red Bull or one of those no-dose caffeine things that you always regret taking later, you want to sit on chapter 2, verse 14 to 7, 1, and read it out loud. It'll take you like 20 minutes, maybe 25 minutes if you're a slow reader and take a little nap in the, in the middle of it. And you can, you can read it and be refreshed on what is the gospel? What is it that God has done in my heart? And what does it mean to turn then and to tell others about this glorious news of the gospel? In fact, if you look at 2.14, look back there for just a second. Paul says, be th but thanks be to God 
who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. God leads us in triumphal procession. Verse 15, we are the aroma of Christ. You go down a few verses, 3, chapter 3, verse 4, our sufficiency is from God. Our sufficiency is God. Verse 7 of chapter 3, we have a glorious gospel. It is glorious. Verse 11, it's so glorious, it's permanent, it's forever. It cannot be compared with anything else in this world. Verse 18 of chapter 3, the Spirit of God himself comes to us and transforms us. And when we open up even in chapter 4, and when we see these words, by God's mercy we have this ministry, you can already see there is so much that we have received, so much that we have drank in that God has given us. It is a glorious thing. It is beautiful. It's, it's beyond what we deserve. It's beyond what we can imagine. It's mercy. Now, the, the reality of mercy, though, is sometimes, day in and day out, living under the shadow of mercy, we become accustomed to it. It becomes commonplace. That which a year ago or ten years ago riveted our attention has now become staid, normal, dull. And that's why we come here on a Sunday morning. And that's why we have books like uh, 2 Corinthians and, and chapters like verse f- or chapter 4 to wake us up, to stir us again to love and good deeds so that we can look at each other and say, I have received mercy. I have received that which I do not deserve. I'm not getting what I do deserve. And you are too. But think for a moment. Think for just a moment. What if it wasn't by mercy? What if that which we do and that which we receive by God, what if it was based on what you could actually, what you could perform, what you could, what you could merit? What if you got here this morning based on what you could do? I mean, think about your, your kid's salvation. Think about your, your neighbor's understanding something about the gospel. Think about yourself, all, all the, the terrible things that we think and do, the distractions we have. Imagine if being a Christian were based on what you could perform. We would have no hope. What a burden. What grief. I mean, what a joy to be able to see these words, that ministry, that life is by mercy. I mean, think about when we, in, in India, we, we were surrounded Surrounded by hundreds and thousands, tens of thousands, hundred thousands in our city, millions of people who did not know Christ. What burden, what grief. And yet I can look at them and I can remind myself of mercy, that I received mercy. I received this gospel by mercy and so hence I can give it by mercy and pray and pray and plead, God, please be merciful with these people around me. Please, Lord, hear our prayer. Now, there's a good question to ask of a text like this. A good question, that is, is this mercy, this ministry of mercy, um, something that is only for gospel workers like the Apostle Paul or missionaries, people who go overseas and, and do crazy stuff, or is it something that is available or open for everyone, for all of you? In other words, when you're reading this text, do you read it and say, 
Therefore, I have the ministry by the mercy of God. Okay, what's my mercy? I get mercy. Therefore, I don't need his heart. It's a good question to ask because, because if it is something that Paul desires for apostles, for, for first century apostles, or maybe for 21st century missionaries, we want to be cautious to say, oh, this all applies to me, right? And yet there, there are several aspects in this passage, in this section of 2.14 to 7.1 that, that show us that I, it really does, it really is something for us all. It's something that you can take and savor and consider. In fact, look at, at 2 Corinthians 3.18. We, we alluded to it just a few minutes ago. Paul says, and we all, all of us, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image. We all, that means me and you. That means all of us. Paul's including the, the, the church of, second, uh, of Corinthians. You can look at for, uh, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says, we make it our aim to please Christ. A few words later, he says, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's not just apostles. That's not just missionaries. That's, that's you and me, all of us. Verse 1 of chapter 7, Paul says, uh, that he says, since we have received these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement. That's all of us. That's me and you. And so really what we see here is that Paul starts with this ministry and he, he is reflecting on apostolic ministry. And yet it's also a model for the church, for the local church here and a model for global missions in the 21st century. And he merges into this discussion. What does it mean to be someone who loves Christ. What does it mean for someone who loves the gospel, to be a gospel worker, to shine forth Jesus Christ? And so this morning, all of us, whether we're a gospel worker overseas, or whether we're a gospel worker here, whether we're someone who is an elder or a pastor, someone who desires to be an elder or pastor, or whether someone who just loves to come and be a part of the church, all of us want to remember mercy. We need it. We need to, to fuel ourselves on mercy. And today, before you walk on out, out of here like in a half hour, you want to turn to one another and say, did you remember mercy today? And we want to write it up. We want to write up a, the things that God has done for us day in and day out. And we want to remind others and stir them up because I need to be stirred up. You need to be stirred up with mercy. We want to remember it. Now, Paul also desires, as we want to fuel our fire for the Lord, as we want to shine forth Jesus Christ, he also desires that we would turn away from the ways of the world. He wants us to remember mercy. He also wants us to renounce, resist, reject, refuse. And you see that there in verse 2. Look back there at verse 2 with me. He says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. We see in this God, God's desire, Paul's desire, for us to be a holy people. Now, the history on Corinth is helpful here. The city of Corinth, they, they were famous for their rhetoricians. They loved people who could speak well. They loved someone who could craft a, a cunning sonnet or a, a beautiful poem. In fact, those people became like the rock stars of, of their culture. They were pop culture idols. People loved them. They were the movers and the shakers. And so in Corinth, there was this, this love of the well-spoken word. And this had kind of infected the church of Corinth, such that the people in Corinth, they looked after, they looked for, they sought for men, even women, who could speak beautifully, poetically, sometimes shrewdly or cunningly. 
Those people were called the, the super apostles. You can read about them in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. These were men, individuals, who the people of Corinth, the church of Corinth, had exalted and, and they were kind of craving after. And it's one of the main reasons that Paul writes this book in 2 Corinthians, is to, is, is to warn them about these super apostles and to, and to commend to them what is true, biblical, godly, gospel-centered life and ministry. Now, those super apostles, those so-called apostles, they loved to manipulate. They loved to tell a, a beautiful story. They weren't faithful to the word. And here we see Paul contrasting himself with them. He says, we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We don't manipulate people. We don't play coy. We are not clever with our words. Moreover, he says, we refuse cunning and tampering. We, we refuse to practice cunning and tampering with God's word. Scheming, word games, playing with what the messages that we have. You know, in, uh, in India, when the milkman comes to your door and knocks on the door, and he has a liter of milk for you, you don't wonder or ask, has the milkman added a little water to it, watered it down? You just know he has. That there, there's even a proverb that says, even the milkman puts water in his own milk. The milkman tampers with this product. He puts a little bit of water in it. And why does he do that? Why does he water it down? So that he can make a little more money. So that the milk goes a little bit further. So that he can put a little more cash in his pocket. He is tampering with this product so that he can make a little cash. And that's the concept that we have here of one who tampers with God's word, who takes it and plays with it a little bit, twists it a little bit for personal gain. That's what the super apostles were doing, the so-called apostles. It reminds you, uh, obviously, of, of chapter 2, verse 17, where Paul says, we are not peddlers of God's word like so many, but as commissioned by God in the presence or in the very presence of God, we speak in Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, it's a good question to ask us today. We are not Corinthian so-called super apostles, right? We are not rhetoricians. We're just like normal Christians, um, people who, who love Christ. Why would any self-respecting Christian today, why would any of you be tempted to, to cunning speech? slightly shady language ambiguous category why would any christian knowingly be deceptive well we all know that at some level the bible speaks or talks about some pretty unpopular things and it's helpful for even us we love the truth here do we not and yet it's even it's helpful for us to think have I compromise? Have I been a little lax with certain categories biblically? Because there is a timeless, perennial, global temptation to soften the sharp words of Jesus. That is not just the other church in town or some cousin or friend that I know. That is us. There is a timeless temptation to soften the sharp words of Christ Jesus. There's a theologian, a pastor named D.A. Carson. He says, in every culture, many people absorb and then reflect their surrounding values without much critical thought. 
For example, you could have deep discussions with devout Muslims in the Islamic context, and they may understand what you're saying, what the level of your sentence is in paragraphs, but fail to grasp what the gospel is all about. They understand it at some level, but they don't see it. Or you could have a deep discussion with hedonists who simply cannot see the transcendent value of the gospel. They're blind to it. Some common values in Western culture are painfully antagonistic to the gospel. For example, some popular forms of tolerance are remarkably intolerant. If you proclaim an exclusive Jesus today, you are readily dismissed as a bigot. I don't want you to be dismissed. Certainly not as a bigot. I, I desire, Paul would desire, God would desire that we would winsomely, generously, graciously speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, all of us at some level are tempted to hedge, to say a, a little bit less when we could say a little bit more, to say something a little more convenient when something a little less convenient might be more clear it is a human temptation myself included the lays in albania included the viguiers in france included all of us at times are tempted and yet let it not be so my friends for the only way that uh, an unbeliever, a non-Christian, someone who doesn't follow Christ, the only way that they can hear of Christ is if we speak of Christ. And if we use in our words and our actions and our attitudes things that represent Christ. Because we desire that those who do not know him would come to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I desire that they would know. You desire that they would know. And yet, at other times, we give in to that temptation to soften. And so today, my friends, we want to renounce, we want to reject, we want to refuse. You know, that, third, that third R there, we want to refuse self-aggrandizing, self-promotion. Self-promotion, self-aggrandizing. You see, the, the super apostles, the, the men that were in Corinth and, and speaking beautifully and trying to win the crowds, they exalted themselves. They got themselves mixed up with their message. Now, if you look at verse 5, Paul's able to contrast this. Paul says in verse 5, What we proclaim is not ourselves, that Jesus Christ is Lord, but ourselves as your servants or slaves for Christ. Paul did not boast in himself, but boasted in his weakness, in his smallness. The super apostles, those who were preaching in, in, Second Corinth, or in, the, in the church of Corinth, they exalted themselves. They wanted people to see their accomplishments, their commendations. They wanted people to look at them and say, yeah, they've got it together. We want them. And yet Paul contrasts himself and says, that is not what it means to love the gospel. That is not what it means to shine forth Christ. We boast in our lowliness. We commend ourselves by our weakness. Because in our weakness, the strength of Christ is shown. And so I wonder, my friends, do you glory in your smallness? The reality is that the human condition loves to be seen. We crave attention. We yearn that people would look across the room and think, yeah, 
he's got it together. Oh, sure, she's rocking it. Now, nobody in the morning walks into a church and says, yes, I hope people notice me. We don't say it explicitly, directly. But we love to be seen. We love to be noticed. And Paul would say, no, 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 no. Let us not be like those who exalt themselves at the expense of Christ. When we proclaim Christ, we proclaim ourselves as servants, as slaves, as those ignoble and unworthy to be noticed and seen. And so this morning, my friends, I and you and the missionaries that Placerita Bible Church supports, we desire to proclaim Christ and we desire for, for us to decrease, like John the Baptist said, that he might increase, that we might decrease. And so we have to be relentless with ourselves. We have to be ruthless with ourselves because it is so natural for us to look across the room and see someone else and say, oh, they're craving attention. But I, I'm humble. And so friends, today, today, consider, think, ask yourself, in what ways am I longing to be noticed? In what ways, perhaps, have I fused together m my, me, myself, and I and the proclamation of Jesus and Jesus Christ? Because Jesus will not have it. He is jealous for his own glory. He desires that he himself would be praised and exalted. And so today, consider, ask yourself, Lord, Lord, how am I, how am I putting myself forward? Have I, Lord, how have I perhaps softened the sharp words of the Lord Jesus Christ? Ask yourself, and, and then receive from the Spirit that conviction that he brings you, that sense of how he's led you. We as believers, as, as gospel workers, people who love the truth, we want to remember mercy. We want to renounce, refuse, resist the ways of the world. And we also want to recognize that Satan is real. We want to recognize that Satan is real. You know, several years ago, uh, we were in India, and I, and I read this article in the Washington Post, and it, and it struck me as, as profound. There's a violinist named Joshua Bell, a famous violinist, a gifted one. And he was having sold-out concerts in the Boston uh, Symphony Hall. Minimum seat, seats, 100 bucks. Full house every night. Well, he, he finishes a series of concerts, and then a few days later, he puts on normal clothes, casual clothes, a baseball cap, takes his $3 million violin to the Washington, D.C. Metro. He opens up his, his violin case and starts playing Bach's Chasson, one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever written for the violin on one of the most beautiful sounding violins played by one of the world's best violinists. Thousands of people walk by and six stop and listen for a little bit. Only one of whom recognizes that it's Joshua Bell. Thousands of people walk by and at the end of 45 minutes playing this beautiful piece of music, he has $32 and some change in his violin. They didn't notice him. They didn't see him. Uh, people interviewed the, the, the passerbys going by, and at least a thousand didn't even remember a violinist playing. They didn't see. They didn't hear. 
Many of us are like that when it comes to the realm of the spiritual. This world, this world in which we are sitting right now, that that you exist in right now, is primarily a spiritual world. There is a spiritual reality that is profound, and you and I have an enemy. He is a phenomenal liar. He is the master deceiver. In this passage, in this verse, we see Satan, the god of this world, come for just a moment to center stage. And so look there at verse 4 with me. Paul says, in their case, those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul is under no illusion here. There is a reality, there is a person, a personal enemy that we have named Satan. Now, for many of us, we have relegated Satan to the, the sphere of like a child storybook, storybook myth or to that of like a Hollywood horror movie, um, to something that we, we think maybe this doesn't really exist, to a superstition. Yet Paul does not embrace that perspective. He sees Satan as real, as personal, as deeply vested in hurting and harming Christians. Satan does not desire your good, and he is real. He is a personal being. Demons, angels, they exist. Maybe even here in this room, you cannot see them, you cannot smell them, you cannot touch them. They are real. And we as believers, we as Christians, Paul wants us to see, live in a spiritual realm. Now, I know that as, as Americans, primarily, we have rejected the spiritual realm. We, we kind of have been infected by or absorbed the, the, the Western naturalistic explanation of reality. And yet, Paul says there is a reason why unbelievers, non-Christians, people who don't follow Christ, why they reject Jesus. And did you see it there in the text? They are blind. They cannot see. Their hearts are hardened. They cannot understand. There is more there, isn't there? They are blinded by Satan himself. The God of this world, Satan, the ruler of this world, as it says in John 12, 31. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, calls him the prince of the power of the air. Satan has the ability and then uses this ability to veil, curtain, blind the eyes of the non-Christian, the person who doesn't believe, who doesn't understand. And, and we have to pause here. We have to tarry for just a few minutes because it is likely that you have not thought about Satan, your enemy, in days, perhaps weeks, perhaps months, because we get very used to, accustomed to a normal life. People get sick because they have an infection. They have a hard day because they, they have some discouraging thought per chance. Satan? demons seriously but what does the God of this world do verse 4 what does he do he blinds the minds of the unbelievers here in 2nd Corinthians we see other references to Satan 2nd Corinthians 2 11 Satan has devious schemes and he wants to outwit us 2nd Corinthians 11 verses 2 and 3 he's a phenomenally a phenomenally gifted liar. He is successful in deceiving people. He desires to make people fall into 
into lies and untruth. 2 Corinthians 11.14, he disguises himself as an angel of light. My friends, he is not to be trifled with. He is not to be minimized. He is not to be ignored. Satan desires to eat you up. And he primarily wants to eat up your faith. Now, in this passage, the issue has to do with recognition. Paul wants us to recognize the reality of Satan and that those who are not Christians, they have been blinded. They cannot believe. They cannot understand. Now, the, the background on that is the Corinthian and the Corinthian church. There are some people grumbling. Why is Paul not so popular? Some of them were grumbling. Paul, if he were really an amazing spirit-filled apostle, he'd have thousands of followers everywhere. And so Paul is, in a sense, defending or explaining how the, the God of this world has done something to prevent um, people from understanding or believing. And, and we ourselves need to, need to consider that, that at one point, all of us, myself included, you included, you were blinded by Satan. You did not have the ability to understand. You yourself were born into this world with an, an, a spiritual inability to see Jesus Christ. Now, mind you, Paul is not talking about these physical eyes, right? He is not talking about the two things um, just on the other side of your nose that cause you to, to perceive or take in visual information. He's talking about the eyes of the heart. He's talking about that which is inside you, internal, that allows you to see and savor something that's good. And what exactly do you see in the passage? What exactly does Satan prevent them from seeing? What does he blind them to? Look there. Look there. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? From seeing the light. The light of what? The light of the gospel. This is a glorious gospel, is it not? He keeps them from seeing the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. And who is this Christ but the image of God, the very likeness of God, God himself. My, my brothers and my sisters, you and I have, have something to rejoice in here. Even as we remember mercy, we remember that at one point, this was our condition. This was my condition. Uh, we have something to reflect on here because it means that our nephews, our nieces, our, our parents who, who perhaps don't believe, our neighbors, the people that we work with, unless they know Christ, their plight, their actual inner disposition. It's grievous. It's burdensome because they cannot see. And you can be a brilliant preacher. You can be a phenomenally gifted communicator. You can have all the right things said in all the right way, and yet still they won't understand. They won't see. They won't hear. And so even for a moment, we have to ask, what hope is there? If the God of this world has blinded them from seeing Jesus Christ, what can we do? How can you and I, how can we be a part of this? How can we help people? I mean, are, are, are our hands empty? Are, can we do anything? How is the veil removed? How is it? That's what I, that's what I want. I want to know. How can I help them? How can I rescue them? And I have to say, I, I want to rescue them, right? You want to rescue them. I don't want to rescue them from India. 
India is not a place that they need saving from, right? India's a great place. We don't rescue them from Fiji or from Uganda. We, we don't rescue them from their culture to your culture or from their music to your music or from their political perspective to your political perspective. What do we desire that they, they be rescued from? We, we want to rescue them, yes? We, we desire that they would see Jesus Christ and be saved from the penalty of their sins, from being separated from God. I desire that all of you would come to know Jesus Christ personally, intimately, that you would be in relationship with God. We want to rescue them, my friends. And when you pray for, and when you give financially to this church, and when you support those who have gone overseas or those who locally do the ministry of the gospel, you are actively participating in the rescue of people who are lost. I want to rescue those who are veiled, those who are blind. And yet, how is the veil removed? How do we see that curtain come off? Look back at verse 14 of chapter 3, 314. Paul says, but their minds, the Israelites in this context, were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses read a veil lies over their hearts, but verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. So how is the veil removed? When one turns to Christ Jesus, when one turns to the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is there and there's freedom. There's freedom today. There's freedom for you and I. There's freedom today if you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. There's freedom for you to turn to Christ and to say, come, Lord Jesus, help me see you. And each one of you, each one of us, doesn't matter how you've come today or why you've come today. We can each turn in that same freedom and say, Lord Jesus, help me, transform me. I want to see you. The veil is removed when we turn to Christ. And yet we also see that the veil is removed when God shines in our hearts. Because we as a Christian, we as a gospel worker, we have to rest in the supernatural power of God as we proclaim Christ. We have to rest in his, in his work. Because to be honest, if it, if it really were based in my work, in my ability to speak beautifully, or in what I could say to convince people, it would all be for naught. It would be too much. And so I and you, we, we rest in his supernatural power as he removes the veil as we proclaim Jesus Christ. You know, you saw there in verse 6, but we've got to read it again. Here we see what God does in the, in the moment of salvation. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. You see there that the, but the supernatural work of God harkens back, reminds us of Genesis chapter 1, of when God the Creator speaks into the void. He speaks over the unformed mass. And what happens? What happens in that moment? Light comes. The supernatural work of God creates light there's there was nothing and then everything paul goes all the way back to the very first day 
to the very first words of the very first day, let light shine. Because he wants us to see that it's all in God's hands, the creator God's hands, to do, to save, to draw, to initiate, to bring people to himself. And so you and I can rest in that power. We can rest in the creator God who saves. And so I can go to, I can go to Dubai. You can go to your neighbor. You can continually plead with and pray for those that you know. You don't have to give up on that, on that relative or that friend who has yet to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because you can, you can preach and teach and, and share and pray for knowing that the creative God is the one who spoke. And yet today, he doesn't speak over an unformed mass. He doesn't speak into the dark and voidless night of Genesis 1. No, he speaks into the heart of every single human being who turns to the Lord Jesus. He speaks and creates life. He opens the eyes so that we see. He opens the ears so that we hear. He gives us air to breathe spiritually, and we are alive. Are you alive, my friends? Do you live for the Lord? Do you wake up in the morning and say, God, thank you for saving me because that is what he has done. He has created in you life. Let light shine. God speaks into your life, into your heart. And he has shown. He has shown. And what has he shown? Do you see there? Look back. What does shine in your heart who shines it's god shining in your heart right we radiate the lord jesus christ it's god shining in your heart and what is he shining he gives the light of the knowledge what kind of knowledge the glorious knowledge the light of the glorious knowledge of god in whose face the almighty god speaks creative supernatural life into you so that you may shine forth Jesus Christ. And when we radiate Christ, we are, we are radiating, we are shining what God has done in our, whole, in our own lives. Now, there's a curious connection here between God's shining and our shining. God lets light shine, and, and we trust in him, and the veil is removed, and we, and we are saved, and we experience relationship with God, and it's beautiful. And while we're doing that, while we're experiencing that, we're also shining. We, we radiate Christ. And yet, we all know that it's possible to love the Lord Jesus and to not radiate very much, to not shine, to have become dull. And so we need to, we need to wash the light a little bit. We need to, to sh shake off some of the shadows. And so today, I want to give you just a few things, a few ways, perhaps, to stimulate that shining, to Foster a bit of that light in your own soul, in your own heart. I need it, and I know you need it too. And so some very simple ways. Number one, sing. Sing with your whole heart, unbridled. When we sing the glorious Christ, when we sing holy, 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 we are speaking to each other. We are speaking the to the creator God. And we love him, do we not? One of the great joys of being a part of a church in India is we, we were all about 180 people in this really tiny room. And we were just crammed, standing room only often. And uh, at least in that context, most of our Indian friends, they didn't know what it meant to be on key or off key. They would just sing. 
And there'd be times, depending on who was near me, where I'm like, I have no idea what the tune is. Because they don't know either. But it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Because we were, we were showing our zeal, our passion, our love for the Lord Jesus. And their tuneless singing spurred my singing on. And our singing spurred each other's faith on. And so men in particular, lead your families in singing. Husbands, lead your family in, in robust, joy-filled verbalizing of these songs. Number two, meet with the Lord in the quiet place. Meet with him. Sit with him. I can't tell you how many times over the years we met a man in India who'd be transferred for a business project or for some work, and he'd be gone for two, three years. He'd go home every couple months for a weekend. And there were several times he would say, brother, you gotta, you got to give me a job, or you got to bring your wife with you. This is weird. You were meant, husband and wife, to live together. And many times they would kind of scratch their head and say, ah, it's a job, it's not that important. But many of us, that's kind of how we treat our relationship with the Lord. We, we, we touch in every now and then when we need something, when we're discouraged, when something's gotten kind of crazy. But otherwise, we just kind of do our thing. Yeah, but the, the Lord doesn't want that. He, he desires intimacy. And I know that you desire for intimacy. And that takes a little time. That means going and meeting with him. It says closing down or shutting down something that's good have something that's that's better and so meet with him maybe even today spend some time talking with him maybe through some of the questions on, on that sheet asking the lord to search your heart perhaps some of you might even be interested in fasting for the lord if you recall the lord jesus was asked by his disciples at one point about fasting and he said you know while the bridegroom is with everybody nobody's fasting we're partying but then when the bridegroom is not there when Christ is not there, then the disciples will, will fast. They will, they will desire to, they will hunger to be with the Lord. I just wonder, do you hunger to be with the Lord Jesus? Perhaps as we consider fasting for him, fasting to know him, to love him, that he might give you a deeper, more abiding taste for what he is like. Fourth, uh, to radiate Christ, to to, to Foster this sense of shining. Consider where your money goes. Consider supporting missions. Now, I say this being the missionary, standing up and talking about missions, that it's kind of, s I don't know, in my best interest to talk about missions giving. Uh, but no, there, there, it is a beautiful, a good, a courageous thing to give money to a church like Placerita. And then Placerita, the, the leaders, the elders, they prayerfully consider how do we support the men and the women who go out from this body? They, they, they consider wisely, how can we best support the needs of, of Placerita Bible Church extended to Uganda or to France or to, to Romania or Slovenia? And so that way you actually actively participate in what those men and women are doing. And it is, it is thrilling. You know, there, there's one family that we've been partners with for many years here at PBC. They faithfully generously give it's a number it's like 63 dollars and 50 cents don't really get the percentage but i love seeing their name and i love seeing the amount because i know that they they're partnering with us they're holding the rope 
that they desire that the gospel would go out. They desire that people would, would see Jesus Christ, though they be blind now. They desire that the gospel would, be, would infiltrate, in a sense, that, that city in that context. And they do it with us. It's a glory. It's a beautiful thing. Now, my friends, in all of this, in all of this, if you only hear one thing today, we, we remember mercy, we renounce, resist, reject the, the ways of the world, we recognize that Satan is real, we want to rest in the supernatural work of God, we radiate Christ, all because Jesus Christ is our Lord and our King. We want to see him, right? We want to behold him, we want to love him, that others may love him too. So pray with me now. Heavenly Father, we come to you, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, and Lord, we are asking, we're asking for something, we want to know him, we want to see him, oh Lord, we have been blinded in the past, we have perhaps even believed some lie now, we have mixed up truth with some error, but no longer, we come pleading with you, asking that you would let us see Jesus Christ. We want to know him, Lord, and we want to make him known. And so help us, Father, even now to be thinking about those family members or those friends or those co-workers that we've kind of grown cold to or we've just given up hope. Oh, Father, spur on our hope. Help us not to lose heart us to remember these things that you've done for us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.